Feed 44 presents Chapter 2 of The Desktop Regulatory State by Kevin Carson, read by Tony Dreer. Chapter 2. Networks versus Hierarchies. 1. The Systematic Stupidity of Hierarchies. The intrusion of power into human relationships creates irrationality and systematic stupidity. As Robert Anton Wilson argued in 13 Choruses for the Divine Marquis, Quote, a civilization based on authority and submission is a civilization without the means of self-correction. Effective communication flows only one way, from master group to servile group. Any cyberneticist knows that such a one-way communication channel lacks feedback and cannot behave intelligently. The epitome of authority and submission is the army and the control and communication network of the army has every defect a cyberneticist nightmare could conjure. Its typical patterns of behavior are immortalized in folklore as snafu, situation normal, all fucked up. In less extreme, but equally nosologic form, these are the typical conditions of any authoritarian group, be it a corporation, a nation, a family, or a whole civilization. End quote. That same theme featured prominently in the Illuminatus Trilogy, which Wilson co-authored with Robert Shea. In a rigid hierarchy, nobody questions orders that seem to come from above, and those at the very top are so isolated from the actual work situation that they never see what is going on below. Quote, a man with a gun is told only that which people assume will not provoke him to pull the trigger. Since all authority and government are based on force, the master class, with its burden of omniscience, faces the servile class with its burden of nescience, precisely as a highwayman faces his victim. Communication is possible only between equals. The master class never abstracts enough information from the servile class to know what is actually going on in the world where the actual productivity of society occurs. The result can only be progressive deterioration among the rulers. End quote. This inability of those in authority to abstract sufficient information from below, and this perception of superiors by subordinates as a highwayman, result in the hoarding of information by those below and their use of it as a source of rents. The power differential, by creating a zero-sum relationship, renders the pyramid opaque to those at its top. Radical organization theorist Kenneth Boulding, in a similar vein, noted the way in which organizational structure affects the flow of information, quote, hence affects the information input into the decision maker, hence affects his image of the future and his decisions. There's a great deal of evidence that almost all organizational structures tend to produce false images in the decision maker, and that the larger and more authoritarian the organization, the better chance that its top decision-makers will be operating in purely imaginary worlds." End quote. In his discussion of Matus, i.e. distributed situational job-related knowledge, James C. Scott draws a connection between it and mutuality, as opposed to imperative hierarchical coordination, and acknowledges his debt for the insight to anarchist thinkers like Kropotkin and Proudhon. Matus requires two-way communication between equals, where those in contact with the situation, the people actually doing the work, are in a position of equality. Interestingly, Wilson had previously noted this connection between mutuality and accurate information in 13 choruses. He even included his own allusion to Proudhon. Quote, 
Proudhon's system of voluntary association, anarchy, is based on the simple communication principles that an authoritarian system means one-way communication, or stupidity, and a libertarian system means two-way communication, or rationality. The essence of authority, as he saw, was law, that is, effective communication running one way only. The essence of a libertarian system, as he also saw, was contract, that is, mutual agreement, that is, effective communication running both ways. End quote. To call a hierarchical organization systematically stupid is just to say that it's incapable of making effective use of the knowledge of its members. It is less than the sum of its parts. Clay Shirky quotes John Seeley Brown and Paul de Gude, quote, What if HP knew what HP knows? They had observed that the sum of the individual minds at HP had much more information than the company had access to, even though it was allowed to direct the efforts of those employees, end quote. Because a hierarchical institution is unable to aggregate the intelligence of its members and bring it to bear effectively on the policy-making process, Policies have unintended consequences, and different policies operate at cross-purposes with each other in unanticipated ways. And to top it all off, the transaction costs of getting information to management about the real-world consequences of its policies are prohibitive for the same reason that the transaction costs of aggregating the information required for effective policymaking in the first place were prohibitive. But no worries. Because senior management don't live under the effects of their policy and subordinates are afraid to tell them what a clusterfuck they created, the CEO will happily inform the CEOs at other organizations of how wonderfully his new best practice worked out. And because these competing organizations actually exist in an oligopoly market of cost plus and administered pricing and share the same pathological institutional cultures, they suffer no real competitive penalty for their bureaucratic irrationality. A hierarchy is a device for telling naked emperors how great their clothes look. Thoreau, a professor of physics who for obvious reasons prefers to blog anonymously, describes it in the context of his interactions with an administrator. Quote, Let's just say that there's something we do that is suboptimal. Everyone knows it is suboptimal. I observed that what we do is suboptimal and we shouldn't expand this, but she was basically pointing out that we routinely generate reports saying that it works. Yes, we do. Those reports involve pigs and lipstick. We all know this. However, she lives in a world that is based on those reports. End quote. When you constantly operate on the assumption that you are going to internalize the effects of your own actions, you have an incentive to anticipate things that could go wrong. And when you make a decision, you continually revise it in response to subsequent experience. Normally functioning human beings, that is, who are in contact with our environments and not insulated from them by hierarchies, are always correcting our own courses of action. Authority short-circuits this process. It shifts the negative consequences of decisions downward and the benefits upward, so that decision-makers operate based on a distorted cost-benefit calculus and it blocks negative feedback so that the locus of organizational authority is subject to the functional equivalent of a psychotic break with reality. When policy isn't the result of systematic stupidity, it's an elaborate exercise in plausible deniability. So management can say, but they knew about our written policy, 
when the inevitable shortcuts to compensate for deliberate understaffing and irrational interference result in a public relations disaster. The lack of feedback means most organizations are successful at achieving goals that are largely artificial, goals defined primarily by the interests of their governing hierarchies rather than by the ostensible customers or those engaged in directly serving customer needs. On the other hand, organizational structures like networks, which are based on two-way feedback between equals, result in a high rate of failure. As Clay Shirky puts it, Open source is a threat because it outfails proprietary systems. It can experiment and fail at less cost. Because failure is more costly to a hierarchy, hierarchies are biased in favor of predictable but substandard outcomes. Failure also reflects the empowerment of workers and customers. Most products in the corporate economy are only considered good enough because customers are powerless. Christia Freeland argues the GOP establishment and its backers were so utterly convinced Obama would lose in 2012 and caught so badly off guard by the actual outcome of the election because of the very same kinds of information filtering and groupthink that prevail in the corporations they represented. Quote, by his own definition, Romney's single strongest qualification to become president was analytically based managerial experience. And if the election campaign were the test of that, and even if you were ideologically his fan, you should think it right that he lost. Now, how could it happen? My first thought was it was also the case that all the smartest guys in the room managed to lose a lot of money in 2008 and managed to convince themselves of a set of very mistaken beliefs about where the markets were going to go. It was a lot of the same people on the wrong side of both bets. When you're a rich and powerful guy, it can make it hard to see reality, especially when you're paying your campaign staff great salaries, as Romney was. End quote. To repeat, no matter how intelligent the people staffing a large institution are as individuals, hierarchy makes their intelligence unusable. Given that the institution does not exist as a vehicle for the goals of its members, there's no intrinsic connection between their personal motivation and their roles in the organization. And the information and agency problems of a hierarchy prevent consequences from being fully internalized by actors. Individuals simply cannot be trusted with the discretion to act on their own intelligence or common sense. That's the rationale for standardized work rules, job descriptions, and all the rest of the Weberian model of bureaucratic rationality. Because someone, somewhere, might use her initiative in ways that produce results that are detrimental to the interests of the organization. You need a set of rules in place that prevent anyone from doing anything at all. Unlike networks, which treat the human brain as an asset, hierarchical rule systems treat it as a risk to be mitigated. Job descriptions and union work rules are the other side of the coin to Weberian Taylorist work rules. Both result from hierarchy. Power, by definition, creates zero-sum relationships. Superiors attempt to externalize effort on subordinates and skim off the benefits of increased productivity for themselves. Subordinates, as a result, attempt to minimize the expenditure of effort and do the minimum necessary to avoid getting fired. Both superiors and subordinates filter or hoard information of benefit to the other party and attempt to maximize the rents from keeping each other ignorant. In this zero-sum relation, where each side can only benefit at the expense of the other, each party seeks mechanisms for limiting abuses by the other. 
Paul Goodman illustrated the need to impose constraints on freedom of action and impede individual initiative in directly adopting the most common sense and lowest cost solutions to immediate problems, with the example of replacing a door catch in the New York public school system. Quote, to remove a door catch that hampers the use of a lavatory requires a long appeal through headquarters because it is city property. An old-fashioned type of hardware is specified for all new buildings that is kept in production only for the New York school system. When the social means are tied up in such complicated organizations, it becomes extraordinarily difficult and sometimes impossible to do a simple thing directly, even though the doing is common sense and would meet with universal approval, as when neither the child nor the parent nor the janitor nor the principal of the school can remove the offending door catch. End quote. A corporate hierarchy interferes with the judgment of what Friedrich Hayek called people on the spot, and with the collection of dispersed knowledge of circumstances in exactly the same way a state does. Most production jobs involve a fair amount of distributed job-specific knowledge and depend on the initiative of workers to improvise, to apply skills in new ways, in the face of events which are either totally unpredictable or cannot be fully anticipated. Rigid hierarchies and rigid work rules only work in a predictable environment. When the environment is unpredictable, the key to success lies with empowerment and autonomy for those in direct contact with the situation. Hierarchical organizations are, to borrow a wonderful phrase from Martha Feldman and James March, systematically stupid. For all the same Hayekian reasons that make a planned economy unsustainable, no individual is smart enough to manage a large hierarchical organization. Nobody, not Einstein, not John Galt, possesses the qualities to make a bureaucratic hierarchy function rationally. Nobody's that smart any more than anybody smart enough to run Gauss plan efficiently. That's the whole point. As Matt Iglesias puts it, quote, I think it's noteworthy that the business class as a set has a curious and somewhat incoherent view of capitalism and why it's a good thing. Indeed, it's in most respects a backwards view that strongly contrasts with the economic or political science take on why markets work. The basic business outlook is very focused on the key role of the executive, good, profitable, growing firms are run by brilliant executives, and the ability of the firm to grow and be profitable is evidence of its executive's brilliance. This is part of the reason that CEO salaries need to keep escalating. Recruiting the best is integral to success. The leaders of large firms become revered figures. Their success stems from overall brilliance. The thing about this is that if this were generally true, if the CEOs of the Fortune 500 were brilliant economic seers, then it would really make a lot of sense to implement socialism. Real socialism. Not progressive taxation to finance a mildly redistributed welfare state. But let's let Vikram Pandit and Jeff Immelt centrally plan the economy. After all, they're really brilliant. But in the real world, the point of markets isn't that executives are clever and bureaucrats are dimwitted. The point is that nobody is all that brilliant. End quote. No matter how intelligent managers are as individuals, a bureaucratic hierarchy insulates those at the top from the reality of what's going on below, and makes their intelligence less usable. Chris Dillow describes it this way, quote, But why don't firms improve with practice in the way that individuals' musical or sporting performance improves? Here are four possible differences. 1. 
Within firms, there's no mechanism for translating individuals' learning or incremental knowledge into corporate knowledge. As Hayek said, hierarchies are terrible at using fragmentary, tacit, dispersed knowledge. Two, job turnover means that job-specific human capital gets lost. Three, bosses are selected for overconfidence, but overconfidence militates against learning. And four, in companies, the feedback that's necessary for improvement gets warped by adverse incentives or ego involvement. If I play a phrase or chord badly, my ears tell me to practice it more. But if a company gets some adverse feedback, falling sales say, no one has an incentive or desire to say, I screwed up, I better improve. Informal efforts to generate feedback, such as performance reviews, often backfire. What I'm saying is what every methodological individualist knows. Companies are not individuals writ large. The differences between them can mitigate against learning by doing. End quote. As an institution becomes larger and experiences increased overhead and bureaucratic ossification, it simultaneously becomes more and more vulnerable to fluctuating conditions in its surrounding environment and less able to react to them. To survive, therefore, the large institution must control its surrounding environment. The only real solution to complexity and unpredictability, as security analyst Bruce Schneier argues, is to give discretion to those in direct contact with the situation. Quote, Good security has people in charge. People are resilient. People can improvise. People can be creative. People can develop on-the-spot solutions. People are the strongest point in a security process. When a security system succeeds in the face of a new or coordinated or devastating attack, it's usually due to the efforts of people. End quote. The problem with authority relations in a hierarchy is that, given the conflict of interest created by the presence of power, those in authority cannot afford to allow discretion to those in direct contact with the situation. Systematic stupidity results, of necessity, from a situation in which a bureaucratic hierarchy must develop arbitrary metrics for assessing the skills or work quality of a labor force whose actual work they know nothing about and whose material interests militate against remedying management's ignorance. Most of the constantly rising burden of paperwork exists to give an illusion of transparency and control to a bureaucracy that is out of touch with the actual production process. Every new layer of paperwork is added to address the perceived problem that stuff still isn't getting done the way management wants, despite the proliferation of paperwork saying everything has been done exactly according to orders. In a hierarchy, managers are forced to regulate a process which is necessarily opaque to them because they are not directly engaged in it. They're forced to carry out the impossible task of developing accurate metrics to evaluate the behavior of subordinates, based on the self-reporting of people with whom they have a fundamental conflict of interest. The paperwork burden that management imposes on workers reflects an attempt to render legible a set of social relationships that, by its nature, must be opaque and close to them, because they are outside of it. Each new form is intended to remedy the heretofore imperfect self-reporting of subordinates. The need for new paperwork is predicated on the assumption that compliance must be verified because those being monitored have a fundamental conflict of interest with those making the policy, and hence cannot be trusted. But at the same time, the paperwork itself relies on their self-reporting as the main source of information. 
Every time new evidence is presented that this or that task isn't being performed to management's satisfaction, or this or that policy isn't being followed, despite the existing reams of paperwork, management's response is to design yet another and equally useless form. Weberian work rules result of necessity when performance and quality metrics are not tied to direct feedback from the work process itself. They're a metric of work for someone who is neither a creator, provider, nor an end user. And they are necessary again because those at the top cannot afford to allow those at the bottom the discretion to use their own common sense. A bureaucracy can't afford to allow its subordinates such discretion because someone with the discretion to do things more efficiently will also have the discretion to do something bad. And because the subordinate has a fundamental conflict of interest with the superior, and does not internalize the benefits of applying her intelligence, she can't be trusted to use her intelligence for the benefit of the organization. In such a zero-sum relationship, any discretion can be abused. The problem is, discretion cannot be entirely removed from any organizational process. James Scott writes that it's impossible, by the nature of things, for everything entailed in the production process to be distilled, formalized or codified into a form that's legible to management. Quote, the formal order encoded in social engineering designs inevitably leaves out elements that are essential to their actual functioning. If the East German factory were forced to operate only within the confines of the roles and functions specified in the simplified design, it would quickly grind to a halt. Collectivized command economies virtually everywhere have limped along thanks to the often desperate improvisation of an informal economy wholly outside its schemata. Stated somewhat differently, all socially engineered systems of formal order are in fact subsystems of a larger system on which they are ultimately dependent, not to say parasitic. The subsystem relies on a variety of processes, frequently informal or antecedent, which alone it cannot create or maintain. The more schematic, thin, and simplified the formal order, the less resilient and the more vulnerable it is to disturbances outside its narrow parameters. It is, I think, a characteristic of large formal systems of coordination that they are accompanied by what appear to be anomalies but on closer inspection turn out to be integral to that formal order. Much of this might be called matis to the rescue. A formal command economy is contingent on petty trade, bartering, and deals that are typically illegal. In each case, the non-conforming practice is an indispensable condition for formal order. In each case, the necessarily thin, schematic model of social organization and production animating the planning was inadequate as a set of instructions for creating a successful social order. By themselves, the simplified rules can never generate a functioning community, city, or economy. Formal order, to be more explicit, is always and to some considerable degree parasitic on informal processes, which the formal scheme does not recognize, without which it could not exist, and which it alone cannot create or maintain. End quote. And as I keep trying to hammer home, just the reverse is true of networks and stigmergic organization. Their beauty is that they render the intelligence of all their individual members more usable. While one-way communication creates opacity from above, two-way communication creates horizontal legibility. To quote Michael Bowens, quote, The capacity to cooperate is verified in the process of cooperation itself. 
Thus, projects are open to all comers provided they have the necessary skills to contribute to a project. These skills are verified and communally validated in the process of production itself. This is apparent in open publishing projects such as citizen journalism. Anyone can post and anyone can verify the veracity of the articles. Reputation systems are used for communal validation. The filtering is a posteriori, not a priori. Anti-credentialism is therefore to be contrasted to traditional peer review, where credentials are an essential prerequisite to participate. P2P projects are characterized by holoptism. Holoptism is the implied capacity and design of peer-to-peer -peer processes that allow participants free access to all the information about the other participants. Not in terms of privacy, but in terms of their existence and contributions, i.e. horizontal information, and access to the aims, metrics, and documentation of the project as a whole, i.e. the vertical dimension. This can be contrasted to the panoptism which is characteristic of hierarchical projects. Processes are designed to reserve total knowledge for an elite, while participants only have access on a need-to-know basis. However, with P2P projects, communication is not top-down and based on strictly defined reporting rules, but feedback is systemic, integrated in the protocol of the cooperative system. End quote. In a prison, governed by panopticism, the warden can see all the prisoners, but the prisoners can't see each other. The reason is so the prisoners can't coordinate their actions independently of the warden. Holopticism is the exact opposite. The members of a group are horizontally legible to one another and can coordinate their actions, and everyone has a sense of the emerging whole and can adjust their actions for the greatest fit. The unspoken assumption is that a hierarchy exists for the purposes of the management, and a holoptic association exists for the purposes of its members. The people at the top of the hierarchical pyramid can't trust the people doing the job because their interests are diametrically opposed. It's safe to trust one another in a horizontal organization because a common interest in the task can be inferred from participation. You've been listening to Feed 44, the official podcast channel of the Center for a Stateless Society. C4SS is an anarchist think tank and media center. For more information, please visit c4ss.org.